Thanks for tuning in to the Bethel New England Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from our lead pastor, Pastor Eric Capelli. Well, are you ready for the Word of God this morning? Come on. And if you're not, I say all the time, I am born again ready, meaning if I'm not ready, the Spirit of God makes me ready for those things. This month, we're going to be talking about the anointing. It is a word that is oftentimes used in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, but it's also used in Episcopalian and Catholic circles. It's used in the secular world, if you recently saw the coronation of King Charles III. And it seems like a very antiquated thing. In the upcoming month, we're going to talk about what the anointing is not. Then we're going to talk about what the anointing is. And we're going to talk about what relevance it has for your life. And will it happen in that order? Not necessarily. I'm going to mesh it all together. And you have to dissect that for yourself. But today... I want to talk about what it means to be anointed, what it means to be anointed as New Testament Christians. If you are sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, or you're watching online and you do not know him, I will get into more of that today and even in the upcoming month of why this has relevance for you. To those that know Jesus, I want to talk to you very frankly about your identity. Because you serve and you have a role in the society you live in as a New Testament prophet, king, and priest. As I've said before, people have tried to make some crazy things out of that within the Pentecostal charismatic movement. They like to dress up sometimes like ancient figures of the Old Testament, make special oils and throw it everywhere, spray it and spray guns, you name it. That is not what the anointing is. And so as the Old Testament and ancient tradition still practice pouring sacred anointing oil on people that are dedicated to being prophets, kings, and priests, the New Testament says to you and I that just like Jesus is the anointed one of God, you and I that believe in him, we are also God's anointed. But as I ask myself all the time, what the heck does that have to do with me? What does that fit into my life as a New Testament Christian in the 21st century? What is this idea of oil being poured on someone's head? What does it have to do with the world in which I live? Good. I'm glad you asked that question because that's the one I want to answer this morning. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus was the anointed one. He wasn't born to anyone special. He was born to Mary and Joseph, but yet the anointing rested upon him. And that anointing that rested upon him is the very same anointing that you have given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would realize our truest identity as children of God. I pray that you would use it to transform us from the inside out and to change the world in which we live from the inside out. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when it comes to the anointing, we realize that you and I as New Testament Christians, we serve three distinctive roles. We are prophets, kings, and priests. And that might seem very far away from the daily life you live. 
It might seem very far away from the titles that you may have imposed upon yourself, gladly have taken upon yourself, but this idea of your identity in Jesus is extremely important. Peter, as he's writing to a church that is suffering from heavy persecution for their faith in First and Second Peter, wants the people to know to not give up in the midst of their suffering. So he affirms their identity to the uttermost. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says to those that are being persecuted, that are ready to quit, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I want you to stop for one minute today. 60 seconds. I want you to look at the words upon the screen and I want you to print them into your brain and into your heart. And if there is any part of you that does not feel that you are called, that you are a royal priesthood, that you are chosen or a holy nation or God's special possession, I need you to ask the Holy Spirit to stamp this into your heart like the seal that is impressed upon a piece of wax that says, I am his. I am his. That is the very cause and nature of my identity. Why? Because you react according to the identity that you claim for yourself. If you don't believe you're no shakes, if you don't believe you're anything special, if you don't believe what the Bible says about you, you will never have an influence on the world that it needs. And so today, as we dissect these three rules, I want us to understand more and more the importance of why Jesus gave his anointing to us. Jesus gave his anointing to us. He gave his Holy Spirit to us so that you and I could stand up every day in the power that he's willing to give. And so the first role that we need to claim is the role of a prophet. Do you know that the church has a prophetic voice? Do you know that the church's voice is more than a few great people who give words in the service on Sunday morning? Do you know that each of you is a mouthpiece of God for the day and age in which we live? That God had you purposed and born for this time period to be a voice that speaks his word every day and every hour that people need it. See, God's heart and God's plan was not a plan of respecter of person. It was not a plan of segregation. God's plan was not a plan of inequality and injustice. God's plan was a complete package plan of emancipation for all under the infilling of the Holy Spirit. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, we see God's ultimate desire. And these very words were fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. After this... I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Can all humanity raise their hand? Oh, I guess that's you guys. Yeah. Okay, good. It says, I will pour it out on your sons and your daughters. 
Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. God's package plan is for everyone. In the world in which we live, there is always a discriminatory note that goes into just about everything. At one point in your life, you're too young for everything. At another point, you're too old for everything. You're too feminine for some things. You're too masculine for other things. And people stamp all of these labels on who you are. But that is not the culture of the kingdom of God. And those that represent him should never feel like they're trying to break through a glass ceiling. Because people of this world will always have something to say. You're too young. You're too old. You're a woman. You're a man. You're rich. You're poor. You're American. You're a foreigner. Who gives a rip? Because God doesn't care. God poured out his spirit on one and all. And this is something we've got to grab onto with everything in us. That God does not care about the family that you were born into. God doesn't care about the education you had or the lack of the education you had. God doesn't care about how skillful you are or not. He has called each of us to be a vessel that he can speak through. Oh, well, we've relegated this. It's the pastor who does it and a few brothers and sisters who get the Pentecostal jerks in church and they open their mouth and they scream out a word. That is not what prophecy is all about. Prophecy is being able to share and declare the word of God in any setting. To be a mouthpiece for God if you are the biggest loudmouth the planet has ever known or if you are the quietest church mouse the world has ever seen. You are an instrument for him. He needs your voice to speak. God's desire has always been that your voice would be a voice to speak. And may your voice be a voice that God uses in this day and age to speak like never before. Why does God want to speak through you? Because the church has been silent for too long. And I'm not talking about politicized Americans. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about the real church. I'm talking about the real church that knows the word of God. I'm talking about the real church that cannot be bought because of business decisions. I'm talking about the real church that is not based on pop culture uh, trends. And I'm talking about the church that is the church from the inside out. The church that believes that even the oppressed have a voice. It is the church that believes that women can stand up in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the church that lets the 90-year-old speak and the 5-year-old pray out loud. It is that kind of church church that we need to get back to and we need to regain our voice again. May the world hear loud and clear that Jesus is alive and well. We have a task. Walter Brueggemann says the following. The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception Alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. Ladies and gentlemen, if we were to equate ourselves to the world of fish, we are the salmon. We're swimming upstream. And everyone else is swimming downstream. 
it's hard. It's hard in the day and age in which we live, and one of the biggest deceptions of the American church is to just shut up and be quiet. One of the biggest deceptions of our culture is to let everyone do whatever they want, when they want, how they want, think whatever way they want. And when we say something about it in love, according to the way that the Bible says it, all of a sudden we are haters. We've deceived ourselves. We have deceived ourselves if we allow ourselves, our lives, our families to be indoctrinated with things that are contra to what the Word of God is speaking. Teachers are indoctrinating, politicians are indoctrinating, hospitals are indoctrinating, even churches are indoctrinating. But they are indoctrinating people with a message that makes the heart feel good, but it causes the soul to rot. And our prophetic voice needs to be a voice that is based upon the Bible. It needs to be a voice that is based upon the scripture. Why? Because the prophetic voice is the voice of warning. It is the voice that says, don't go in that direction. Turn around. Danger, danger, danger. And no one wants to hear they're in danger. But when we look back to Jesus coming... His first coming, there was a voice, a lowly voice in the wilderness of John the Baptist that began to cry out in the spirit of Elijah, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the political leaders and the king, everyone was getting nervous. The religious leaders were getting nervous as droves of people were heading to the Jordan to be baptized and live a new life. And even Jesus stepped into those waters with John the Baptist. And he declared the kingdom of God was at hand. The prophetic voice of the church not only proclaims what was, but we proclaim what is coming. The Bible says that same spirit of Elijah will return and it will declare, repent, 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 because the king is coming again. That is the mantra of the church. Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. And either you know him or you don't. Either you belong to him or you don't. And if we do not let this sink into our hearts. We become just as deceived, if not more than those who don't know him. May your voice speak prophetically again. The second role that he calls us to is to the role of a king. Everyone get a little snooty right now. <laughs> Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. These people are losing their jobs because they don't want to go to the guild parties where people are drinking too much and getting drunk and then having sexual experiences that would make you and I blush. These are the believers that are getting kicked out of their homes because, well, they did not go and offer honor to Caesar by paying him a tribute acting as if he were a god. They don't feel special in their society. They are being told they're at the bottom of the totem pole. But yet Paul speaks to them. And he says, but God is so rich in mercy 
And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And I can preach messages just on that verse alone. But let's get to the heart of the matter. Verse 6, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and he seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. And so God is able to point us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who we are united in Christ Jesus. And there's something that I don't want us to miss out on here. When the scripture says you are seated with Christ, and the Old Testament understanding of a king, they sat when they made important decisions. The same thing is true of the modern courtroom. The defense, the prosecutors, they stand to make their arguments. But when the judges rule, they rule like kings, seated at their seats of judgment. And even though the society of their time made these Christians believe that they were nothing, Paul writes to them and says, you are seated like King Jesus in heavenly places. A day is coming where your importance doesn't come because of the status quo of the village you live in and how important people think you are when you're at the local, local supermarket. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, 12a says the following. This saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. And this is something we've got to get our minds around as Christians, that we are ambassadors of a king whose kingdom is still coming. We've got to get that in our heads We've got to get that in our heads more than we represent other causes and other things. Some of you, if I were to threaten your Americanness, you would have a complete and utter breakdown. Like screaming, yelling, burning things in effigy. But many days we walk around questioning our role as ambassadors of a king who is more real than the life we know. Leslie Newbigin says the following, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious cave or enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. Do you know that you are ambassadors of the kingdom? There's something powerful about each and every one of us. And when we go into the world in which we live, no matter what your title or role is or the lack thereof, you are an ambassador of the kingdom. And when we get that into our systems, that we are ambassadors of the kingdom, it changes the way we talk, it changes the way we act, it changes the way we live, it changes the way we walk into a room. You all work and know and go to school with some of those people, huh, that know how to change the atmosphere? Come on. And usually it's not for the good. You've got people like, really, they are like witchy. They're arrogant. They're loudmouths. And they come into a place or people, and it's not only the loudmouths. You also have the Debbie Downers and people that they're depressed and they bring their depression into the room. Come on. They know how to make heavy atmospheres around them. And there are people that do that. 
And we just kind of sit back and tolerate it as Christians. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we are the very people that are doing those things. But God has not caused us to absorb the atmosphere of others. God did not call us to absorb the way other people are doing things. God has called us to represent him everywhere we go. You are an atmosphere changer. And when you begin to believe it and walk in it, oh, powerful things begin to happen. And thank God Jesus believed that of himself. If Jesus had believed for one moment that Herod was the one who was allowed to make all the decisions, and if he believed for a second that the fate of the Jewish people was in the hands of Pilate, we would have all been in trouble. But even at the moment that Jesus willfully hung on a cross in obedience and offered his life for the sins of the world, Jesus knew that he was the king of the universe. There's a beautiful moment in one of the books of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And it kind of addresses what you and I can go through as believers when we kind of doubt who we are. We doubt that identity. It seems very far away. You know, we get it. You know, Charles III is king. But that you and I have some special significance, I don't think that really gets to us. And I like the way that it's worded here in the Chronicles of Narnia. It says, welcome, prince, said Aslan, who is the king lion. He said, do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? Uh, I don't think I do, sir, said Caspian. I'm only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been a proof that you were not. Ladies and gentlemen, there will never be a day that you and I feel sufficient here on earth. And that is what the grace of Jesus does. Even when Paul felt insufficient, Jesus spoke to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus gives you all that you need when you need it. It is not something you always need to feel. It is the reality of who you are. And lastly, you are a priest. I thought it was nice at one point when we were living in the Netherlands, my wife had said it. As a church, we were rigorous with the things that we did, just reaching the community and planting churches and doing all kinds of craziness. But my wife said to me at one point, she said, no matter what this church does, we can never forget our real identity. Because she grew up in what is called a post-Christian post-modern, post-secular society. She grew up under the smoke of the city of Amsterdam, and I'm talking about this kind of smoke versus this kind, I don't know. (laughs) That kind of smoke. And so being a Christian is not something that's heavily praised. Being a Christian is something that's kind of despised by the society. But yet she and the people of their church believed that even if no one received the gospel when they told them, even if no one ever responded, that God had still given them a duty to be the worshipers and the prayer warriors for the society in which they lived. And I want us to be mindful of that. 
Maybe we will never grow in the way that we think we want to grow. Maybe we'll never expand and have the influence that we think we're going to have. But please understand that your worship is powerful. Your prayers are powerful. The moments that you have with God in the secret place are powerful. Never forget that you are a priest of the New Testament. Again, I'll reiterate 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Recently, as I was reading the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, so Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I kept reading about the priest, and God kept telling them that they would not inherit a portion of land in the land of Canaan that they were conquering. He said to them that he, meaning God himself, would be their possession. And then as God punishes them in the book of Jeremiah and they're leaving the promised land, God speaks to Jeremiah and Jeremiah declares to the people of Israel, he says, I understand just one thing, that my only possession is the Lord. And so the priest of the Old Testament understood that God was their only inheritance. He was their only possession. But the New Testament flips the coin to the other side. It says we are God's possession. We are God's inheritance. All of a sudden, we go from being in service to God to being sons of God. And that role change is significant. That there is no prayer that truly goes unanswered. That there's no act of worship that's not rewarded. Oswald Smith says the following. I am perfectly confident that the man who does not spend hours alone with God will never know the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The world must be left outside until God alone fills the vision. God has promised to answer prayer. It is not that he is unwilling, for the fact is, he is more willing to give than we are to receive. But the trouble is, we're not ready. The secret to the anointing in the life of Jesus was the time that he spent with the Father. There's no other way. I don't know how to say it. And I believe in instruction. I believe in the courses we offer. But I can't, I'll tell you this. What I cannot offer you is you getting alone in the secret place with God. Jesus oftentimes withdrew, and we see that as Jesus withdraws to be with the Father, after Jesus comes out of those times with the Father, powerful things happen. Because what does the anointing do? The anointing is more than just feeling all goosebumps and giddy on the inside. When we look at the anointing on the life of Jesus, he wasn't rolling around on the ground like a wild animal. When the anointing of Jesus was there, the blind could see, the deaf could hear, the dead were raised, and sins were forgiven, and demonic forces were expelled. Jesus wasn't prophesying. Jesus wasn't operating in the pathetic. Jesus was operating as a true son of God in his role as a priest to restore all that was broken. 
And so when we talk about anointing, I'm not talking about TV preachers that try to say to you, if you give $14.99, you get a special rug that they prayed for, that if you whip it onto the area that you got sick on, that that all of a sudden makes you better. And there are people, they'll fall for that. That is called being a charlatan. Oh, if I just did this and I just did that, and oh, that man is anointed, and oh, if that person just prays for me, and oh, if that speaker and that person, if they just lay their hands on me, then that is going to bring the true change in my life. That is going to allow me to walk and act and do what Jesus did. I worked with a woman at my church as a young minister. She has quite a testimony. Her name is Jackie. Her testimony is online if you ever want to look it up. Her name is Jacqueline Strodoff. She had been addicted to drugs heavily. Other things in her life that I'll let the video speak for because she's a good friend. I can't even get those words on my lips. She killed her brother with an overdose. She killed her boyfriend with an overdose. They didn't know where to bury his body because they didn't want the police to come, so they wrapped him in a rug and they buried him at a construction site. She had a boyfriend, or I believe a husband at the time, and he beat her so badly that she lost twins that she was carrying. The beating was so bad that she was left infertile after they took the dead twins out of her body. So Jacqueline becomes a believer in Jesus goes through what was at the time new life for women. It's kind of like an adult and teen challenge program. Goes to Bible school, meets a wonderful man, marries him. They become ministers and thank God for his blessing. She became the mother of two beautiful children that are around my age. She could preach like no one's business. She'd walk into a secular setting, even a restaurant, and as she began to preach and pray, people would get touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, and people would go up to her, and they'd say, Jack, I want the anointing that's on your life. She was really sweet, but once in a while, she'd get a little fresh. She said, no, you don't. She said, do you want to go through all the pain that I went through? Do you want to pray all the prayers that I prayed in the secret place when no one was around, crying out to God every single day? The anointing comes with a cost, and that cost is spending time with Jesus. There is no substitute for it. There's no book that can teach it to you. It comes when you develop the discipline of being in his presence. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we see what this anointing of Jesus does and why we should want it. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Oh, people, there's something about Jesus. There's something about Jesus. And I am so thankful for men and women of God that were in the church that I went to as a young boy. When I was 12 years old and I didn't get it, when I didn't understand it, when I had sin rummaging through my life like a trash collector. When I had doubts and confusion, when I was 
overcome by depression and suicidal thoughts when I didn't know which direction to go in. And I walk into this Pentecostal church and the men and women that went to church there, they were filled with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They prayed for me. They spoke words of life over me. They prophesied over me. They prayed and they laid their hands on me. And all of a sudden, I began to encounter Jesus of Nazareth from the Bible. See, because that anointing that was on Jesus, it is on the body of Christ. It is on each and every one of you. You are the anointed ones. When you begin to understand that his power is there for you, not to make your ego great, but to display the power of his kingdom, that is where true change begins to happen in the world in which we live. In closing this morning, Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Let him wipe away all of the walls. Let him wipe away all of the prejudices. Let him wipe away all of the weird teachings you may have ever grown up with today. Come on. Let it not be today about the pastor with his anointed message. Oh, there was such an anointing when you preached. Yeah, I get it. Oh, when you sang that song, there was such an anointing on that song. We have settled for anointed little speeches and we've settled for anointed little songs. But the scripture's not talking about an anointed song or an anointed sermon. The scripture's talking about anointed people. And guess who that is? It's you. You are humanity. The sons and the daughters the young and the old, the foreigner and the natural born. This morning as we take a moment in his presence, let's just stand together. And let's just begin to ask him, Lord, let your anointing fall on me. Jesus, I need your presence. Jesus, I don't need a show, I don't need a song, I don't need another sermon right now. What I need is you. If you are the anointed one of God that Isaiah prophesied, if you're the one that the Gospels talk about and the writings of Paul declare his Messiahship, if your anointing is available for one and for all, let that anointing fall on me. Lord, this month as we preach about the anointing, we ask that the true anointing of the Spirit of God would begin to fall upon us as a body today. We pray that we would stand up, that we would be that voice of prophecy, the voice that speaks out when all the other voices are trying to drown us. We pray that we would stand in the role of a king and be your ambassador in the world in which we live, no matter what anyone else says or thinks. And Lord, we pray that we would always stand in the place of the priest, praying and declaring your praises, even if no one else joins us.
Lord, here I am today. Just like you anointed Jesus, I pray that your anointing falls on me. If that's your desire today for that anointing to fall upon your life like never before, just lift your hands to the Lord today. Just between you and him, Lord, I just, I want more of your presence. I want more of your presence in my life. Lord, wherever I go, I want your presence to flow like never before. And Lord, if I've ever experienced the unauthentic, if I've experienced fake, Lord, let me be a testament of the authentic. Let me be a testament of the real. God, just like Jesus was the real deal, let me be the real deal. Not for my own glory or fame, but for the honor of the name of Jesus, the one that died to give this all to us. Lord, here I am this morning. Take my life. Use me. Use me, Jesus, for your plan, for your purpose. Let your anointing fall on me. This morning as the service concludes, the altar team will be here to pray with you. I kindly ask you to remain in quietness and in worship. If you want to continue to just lift your hands and worship, please do that. As you exit today, our life group leaders will be there with sign-up tables for life groups that are meant to help you press forward in the things of God. We also have our collection for BGMC, which is our children's missions giving fund. The children want to raise a total of $8,000 to buy a water buffalo for a village that desperately needs one. If you feel you want to give to that, please do so. I'd like to ask the altar team to just come to the altars now. And if that's your heart's cry and prayer, Lord, I just want your anointing. If you want to stand where you are and continue to worship, if you want to come to the altars and let men and women of God just lay hands on you and pray for you, then do that. Let God touch you today. May you go in the power of the anointing of Jesus. God bless you this morning. Thanks for tuning in to the Bethel New England Message of the Week. Make sure you share this message with a friend or family member to encourage them today. Head to BethelNE.com to stay up to date with everything that's going on at Bethel New England.